0: All right, friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text, and I'm very, very nervous. So (laughs) what we're gonna do is uh, play a little fun game before we start, that'll put me at ease. It'll make us all on the same page. It's gonna be wonderful. It's gonna be a little bit of a a, a word game, okay? A, A word association game. And this is how it's gonna work. I'm gonna say a word. And then as quickly as you can, you turn to your neighbor or somebody sitting next to you and you say the first word that pops into your mind, okay? Really simple, really simple. Uh, let's, choose, uh, let's choose a word. Um, we'll do H words, okay, H words. Um, helium. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, next one. Halo, (laughs) I heard angel and video game, so that's that's good, (laughs) Uh, mm, Harry, yeah, okay, (laughs) all right, okay, Now for the last word, and surprisingly enough, because I set it up this way, uh, this word has a lot to do with what we're talking about today and what Psalm 95 has to say. So you guys ready for it? Remember the rules? Okay, here we go. Three, two, one, hypocrite. (laughs) That sits a little bit differently, doesn't it? (laughs) Some of you turned to your neighbor and the first word that you thought of was their name. So that was a little <laughs> a little uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, here's a question for you. Why does the word hypocrite make us uncomfortable? I mean, I, th- I think on one level, we know. <laughs> we know we come in here on Sunday, we live a certain kind of way, and we leave in the rest of the week. It's really hard to live that way. While many of us struggle with that, I mean, there's not necessarily shame. The Lord's working on us, right? We have the Spirit, and we have things like counseling, we have restoration groups that we heard about for helping people change in those kind of ways over time, and sometimes it just takes that time. But that kind of hypocrisy, coming in here, doing one thing, leaving and doing another kind of thing, is not the kind of hypocrisy that Psalm 95 is talking about. A couple months ago, College Park had a professor named Jonathan Pennington come in, and he he taught a seminar. And in the middle of his talk, he said, "You know, the Pharisees—they were actually quite righteous." <laughs> and everyone was like, "Huh? Surely that cannot be right." And he said, "Well, the Pharisees didn't break the law, at least at face value." In fact, they were so scrupulous and concerned with not breaking the law that they made up extra rules, extra laws so that they wouldn't even come close to breaking the law. So in other words, the Pharisees were extremely righteous. The problem was, though, that their righteousness was merely superficial. That is, their righteousness was only at the level of their actions. The Pharisees were doing all the right kinds of things They just didn't do them with the right kind of heart. And Jesus, you know, being God, (laughs) saw right through this. And later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually calls out the Pharisees for precisely this reason. In Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says this of the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In other words, this people does and says all the right kinds of things, but I know their heart, and they don't love me. Their worship is in vain. That's to say, their worship, I don't accept it. And today, in our text, in Psalm 95, God, by the power of His Spirit, through His Word, is gonna call us out for the same kinds of things. And what we'll see in this text is that he will do that very graciously and kindly, but with an emphasis on the same twofold pattern, actions and heart. First, he will encourage us to worship him, to do the right kinds of things. Second, he will warn us, as we worship him, to do so with a heart that loves him. So to say it another way, he's encouraging us to do the right kinds of things with the right kind of heart. So I hope you've turned to Psalm 95 by now. This is our main idea today. So pencils, pens at the ready. Here we go. Worship God with a heart that loves him. Our psalm today splits into two parts. Part one is an exhortation to worship the Lord, followed by some reasons why. And part two is a warning that's in the shape of another command. And the command is this. Do not harden your heart. So if you're a numbers person, part one spans from verse one to seven in your Bibles, and part two picks up at verse seven and concludes with the end of the psalm in verse 11. So point one, worship God. If you look at verse one, you're gonna see our first command. Here's what it says. O come, let us sing to the Lord, Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Here, in verse one, we observe what appears to be an invitation. We have words like come, followed by inclusive let us language. We're invited to come sing and to come make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, while we could make a big deal about the words sing and make a joyful noise, that's not necessarily the point. At their heart, these words are indicative of or represent a physical act of worship. The psalmist is inviting us, inviting you and me, to worship God with our actions. And because of the inclusive let us language, this seems to be an invitation to worship God together in community. And that's what we've been doing all morning, right? So that's good. <laughs> that's good. Now, you may or may not have noticed that I've described verse 1 as both an invitation and a command. And that's in part because of the, co- the cohortative communal language in the verse. But even with all the communal language, what you need to see is that this invitation is actually not merely a suggestion at all. Which makes it not simply an invitation either. And you can see this if you keep on reading to verse 2. So look at verse 2. Verse two, oddly enough, repeats the invitation and switches up the wording just a little bit. Here the psalmist says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So at this point, we've been invited to worship the Lord twice, if you count the verses, and four times, if you count each let us. And we know that If you've been invited to do something more than once, it's no longer really an invitation. Think of a parent inviting their child to clean their room. (laughs) Hey Clancy. I have a friend whose dad's name is Clancy, so. (laughs) Hey Clancy, clean your room. Or maybe you should clean your room. And Clancy's like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll get to that. (laughs) and then just as he's about to turn around his parents are like hey hey clancy you should clean your room <laughs> we know at that moment that despite the should language clancy's being given a command not an invitation not a suggestion but a command and here in verse 2 as communal readers of this text together we must recognize that we're receiving not a mere invitation but a command it's time to worship the lord It's time now. All right. Can everyone give me an, okay. (laughs) Nice, okay. (laughs) So the psalmist, presumably being a kind man, doesn't want to leave us without reason to worship God because, well, that would be unreasonable. In verse three, he gives us our first reason. He says this, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, when the psalmist says a great God and a great king above all gods, he's not implying that other gods exist. What he's saying is that even if it were true that other gods existed, it wouldn't matter because the Lord is both great and he is great above all, including the gods of the other nations. He's so great that even the presence of or existence of other gods would not compromise his, great, his greatness, even though they don't exist. So upon hearing that the Lord is great and great above all other gods, you may or may not be ab- inclined to object. You might say, well, how? How is he all that? Well, here's some good news. That's what verses 4 and 5 are for. So if you look at verses four and five, the psalmist tells us how we can know that God is a great God and a great king above all gods. Here's the reason. He created everything. Listen to how the psalmist describes the situation. Starting in verse four, he says, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. This is a clear reference back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, where God created everything. And in a sense, what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, hey, you've read that, haven't you? That God is this God that I'm commanding you to worship. You should worship him. Something of note here for us is the anthropomorphizing of God. That is, the act of describing God with human qualities. Now, the Bible says on one hand that God has no form. That means no body. Yet these two verses say both that everything is in his hand and that his hands formed everything. So, just simply, God is being described as one who has hands. And in this instance, this human-like description of God is a way to communicate both God's power and his intimate control over his creation. What the psalmist is doing is saying that there's clearly no other God like him because he's so powerful and so close. And that's why for the psalmist, we must worship God because he is a great king who created everything and he rules over that creation with an intimate, near power. If you look at verse 6, you'll see another command to worship God. Here's what it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And here, even in this command, the psalmist begins to hint at yet another reason why we should worship God. You see, not only is he the creator of everything, as we saw in verses three through five, but more personally, he's our maker, our creator. He made us. Verse seven makes this relationship between God's status as creator and our status as created even clearer. Listen to this. For he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, Here, in this verse, the psalmist points the finger at us. In verses four through five, remember, he said, you see all that? God made all that. You should worship him. Now he points at all of us, he says, God made you. You should worship him. Now, here's something intriguing. If you look carefully, you'll notice that verse seven Also repeats the hand language that we saw earlier. Once again, God is being described as one who has hands. And this time the reason is clear. We're the people of his pasture, he's our shepherd. He leads us, he guides us, he takes care of us. We're in his hand in that he's in control of our lives and over our circumstances. And while we need to heed the the author of the book of Hebrews' warning that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, we know that for those who have given their life to Jesus, who have believed in the name of God's Son, for those who have, as the book of Revelation said, have an ear and have turned with that ear and heard and turned toward their Savior, we know that being in the Lord's hand is not a place of judgment but it's a place of rest. And that's the second reason why we should worship God, because He didn't just make everything and rule over it from a distance. No, He came close. He created us, and He cares for us. And even now, He's holding us. So my friends, that's the point, that's point one of our psalm today. Worship God, because he's a great king who created everything, and worship him because he's a great shepherd who formed you and watches over you. This is the invitation, or the command, of the psalmist to us. But what happens if you've heard these commands to worship God from the psalmist? In fact, what if you heard these commands like every week? For the past year, you come into church and you hear these kinds of things. But like, you haven't heard. Yeah, you've come to church, you come weekly, you're involved in a small group, you serve in so many different kinds of ministries. And listen, you've got ears, but you're not really listening. Perhaps last week when when Pastor Mark said something similar while reading from Revelation 2, you thought what happened at the end of the service was cool, was strategic, fill in the blank, but you weren't moved to worship God, and your affections for Christ weren't stirred. And this week, maybe you find your heart even more ice cold than it was last week. And in an ironic turn of events, maybe you find yourself today having stood in this sanctuary, having already offered worship to a great God, a God who desires your affections and your actions, that you've merely just offered to him a sliver of yourself. Your actions. Not realizing that the quality of those actions are directly dependent upon the quality of your love for God himself. Let me ask you a more serious question. Where in scripture does God smile upon and accept worship that is mere religious obligation. Where in scripture does the Lord overlook a dead heart on the inside because of what appears to be religious commitment on the outside? If you know your Bible, perhaps you might think, ah, you see, it was in the wilderness when God's people were wandering, waiting to enter the promised land. You might even say, see, the people in the wilderness, I mean, they didn't have new hearts yet, so they didn't have the capacity to worship God, so what the Lord did was he made sacrifices for them and if if they were to go give those sacrifices, the Lord would overlook their sinful hearts. My friends, that would be precisely the wrong line of thinking and that's precisely why the psalmist is going to take us there into the wilderness. This journey into the wilderness begins the second half of the psalm. So if you're ready for point two, here it comes. Do not harden your heart. Look at the end of verse seven for me. When you look there, you'll notice a a dramatic shift in tone. This is a clever technique by the psalmist. He's trying to get us to pay attention. In verses one through the beginning of verse seven, we see all these beautiful invitational commands. Come, let us worship the Lord. He's great, he's your God, he's close, he's your shepherd. Yea. And then boom, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. If we're tracking with this song, it's clear why there's a mood shift here. Because the Lord, yes, cares about our external expressions of worship. I mean, that's why he's invited us to come and worship him for all of these good reasons. But he also cares about our internals, too. He wants our heart. He wants it now. And that's why he shifts focus to it. Look at what the psalmist says in verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, what is today? What is if you hear his voice? Let me tell you, today is today. (laughs) When you hear his voice is any time you open God's word or receive the careful wisdom and spirit-filled direction of a brother or sister in Christ. Listen listen to how the author of Hebrews, after quoting lengthily from our text today, describes the situation. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, God speaks through his word, and God speaks by the Spirit through the loving and caring exhortation and encouragement of members of our church body. So when you hear His voice in all of these ways, the psalmist is saying, "Do not harden your hearts." You can see once again in verse eight that the psalmist is not an unreasonable man. Man, he doesn't drop a command and bounce. Instead, he provides a textual backdrop for the command. And he says this, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Now, the story he's referencing by mention of the place names Meribah and Massah actually happens twice within the first five books of the Bible. And in both stories, the people of Israel need water And in both stories, instead of going to the Lord and approaching him with a heart of worship, asking for water that they know the Lord can provide, they actually grumble against the Lord and against the people that God has placed in leadership over them. And they begin to to demand things of God and levy judgments against God. And while the placement of these stories in their own context within the first five books of the Bible is significant in many ways, The most pertinent observation to take note of is that both stories happen after significant displays of God's power, his faithfulness, and his goodness. For example, the first story happens right after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. (laughs) Like, pay attention to the irony in this situation, okay? The Lord has just revealed himself to have power over water by splitting the Red Sea and allowing God's people to walk through on dry land. Then, when the people have an opportunity to trust in God's power over water, they literally do the opposite. They get angry with God. They, they get frustrated with him. They grumble, and they say that the Lord only brought them out into the wilderness to kill them, <laughs> because they're dying of thirst. So in other words, this people, they had seen God's works, yet they didn't believe in him. And you can see this in the demands that they made of him. And my friends, this is what it means to put God to the test. To feign love for God, but to really hate him. To be angry with him and not love him on the inside, but to lie to yourself and everyone around you by continuing going on, making sacrifices for sin, by serving Him on the outside, all the while demanding good things from Him as if you deserve them. Think about it. As the people of Israel wandered about in the wilderness, they acted like this over and over and over again, and they grumbled like crazy. They demanded from the Lord the good blessings he promised despite the fact that they weren't the intended recipients of those blessings. Reason being, they didn't love him. And they did all this thinking that their animal sacrifices protected them in some way when they didn't. And they weren't intended to. What God wanted was a heart that loved him. And if you're wondering what the Lord thought of this behavior, you need not look any longer. Look at verse 10. What does it say? For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. You need to understand the severity of the situation here. The Lord says two things of these wilderness people. One, that they are a people who go astray in their heart in other words their heart wanders after things other than him number 2 they've not known my ways in other words they don't know the lord now if you were to summarize the condition of this people you could simply say this this people didn't love the lord and they didn't really want anything to do with him do you catch what the what the lord says of them in the first part of verse 10 He says this, I loathed them. You see, it turns out that not only do the people in the wilderness not love the Lord, but the Lord in turn doesn't love this people either. I know that sounds harsh, but I mean it's right here. And if the Lord really is good and honest and true and faithful, then we as readers can trust his assessment of that generation. It's really true that none of that generation loved the Lord. And none of that generation believed in the Lord despite all his incredible works. The only reason that they pretended to follow the Lord was because he gave them good things like water when they were dying of thirst and manna when they were hungry. They worshiped the Lord and sometimes did what he asked, not because they loved him, but because they got good things from him. Can I ask you, friends, why are you here worshiping God right now? Why do you come to College Park? Why do you stand and sing when you walk in the sanctuary? Why do you go to small group? Why do you go to women's ministry events? Why do you go to First Friday prayer nights? College Park is a great and imperfect place, right? It's a church. And it's supposed to be a sliver of God's kingdom here on earth. And as a result, there are so many good benefits of being a part of a community like this. You get friends, you get status, you get a community, you get help in times of need, sometimes even monetarily, and sometimes food, right? But it's precisely because of these things that it can become all the more confusing as an individual to figure out why am I here? Is it because of all the good gifts I receive as a member of this community? Is that why I'm here? Or am I here today because I genuinely love the Lord? I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you what the Lord says the destiny is of those who do all the right things on the outside, who come and worship Him every week, but have a heart that has become hard-hearted and cold to God Himself. In verse 11, he says this Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And it's clear what this means. To the psalmist, the picture of the wilderness generation dying in the wilderness without reaching God's promised land has become an image of the future of every person who associates with the good things of God's people, yet remains hard hearted to God himself. It does not matter merely that you've performed acts of worship your whole life, that you've been a good Christian who's done a lot of good things for God. What matters is do you love him? Do you know him? Because it actually doesn't matter to God what you do if you don't love him while you're doing those things. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, he'll still use those things for the good of his people. They just won't factor into your eternal destiny. And before you're you're tempted to shirk this exhortation off, listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have we done many great things for the Lord? That's awesome. But the real question is were those works generated out of love? out of a relationship with God. The kind of relationship where you can be confident at the end of your life, when it's time to go to the promised land, to go home to the Lord, that Jesus will say, beloved, I know you. Come on in. I've got you. What Psalm 95 is warning us against is the kind of heartless worship that ultimately leads to death a kind of hypocrisy where you do so many seemingly righteous things on the outside, but you fail to love God on the inside. And you might be tempted to think, hey, well, I'm, I'm just gonna keep on keeping on. Maybe my feelings will catch up at some point. Well, I wonder if the wilderness generation felt that too. And if that's you, to be honest, it's many of us in, at many different times. Like, what's the solution to that, though? I want you to listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you want the promised rest, rest of God? Do you wanna make it? Well, according to Jesus, entering God's rest is predicated upon one response, coming to him. Do you know what that means? It means having a real, lifelong relationship with him where you talk to him about who you are and who he is. It means being honest with him as if he were a real person. So with that in mind, let me propose a different way of worshiping, a more relational kind of worship. In a few minutes, we're gonna worship God through music and singing. But before you lift your voice to make a joyful noise and and sing to the Lord like the psalmist is commanding us to do, take a moment to assess the condition of your heart first, which is also what what the psalmist is commanding. Ask yourself this, where is my heart at with God? How hardened is it to his voice? Because friends, I know you've heard him, you've got ears, but have you been listening? after you do that if you find your heart to be in a healthy place then thank God for his provision and care and ask him to help you live like that continually but if you realize that your heart is cold and hardened that as Mark said last week that you have a grumpy heart I want you to do something that might feel foreign I want you to be honest with God I want you to tell God that you don't want to worship him I want you to tell him that life has been fill in the blank. And that really the last thing you'd like to do is stand and sing. I mean, perhaps you feel angry with him. Perhaps you feel like you can't trust him. Listen, some of us have been told that the Christian life is fake it until you make it. Your feelings, don't worry, they're going to catch up. But often they don't. And after years, patterns of disobedience and disbelief and cynicism end up making your heart all the harder. Friends, the psalmist and I beg you together with one voice, don't fake it until you make it because you won't make it in the end. That's what Psalm 95 has shown us. So my friends, be honest with God about where you're at. Try to make this a regular habit of your life in relationship with God, but practice it right now at the end of this service. Be honest with him and then ask him to soften your heart in the precise area in which it's become hardened. Ask him to help you love him, to help you trust him, to help you worship him with your whole being, not just with a part of who you are. Because if there's a part of you that's dead, I promise you, he's the only one who can fix it and he already knows it's not working. So you can keep on keeping on, sure, but he's gonna know. And at some point, you'll find out that he knows, and you'll realize that God's looking for those who worship him with everything that they are. He's looking for those who find their rest in a real relationship with Jesus. he's looking for those who long to know him Those who, when they do the right things, they do them with a softened heart. And this is why he warns us in Psalm 95 to yes, come worship him, but also to do so with the right kind of heart, a heart that loves him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know us inside and out. You know precisely all the areas in which our hearts are hardened. And you know how easy it is for us to put on a good face while we worship you, to come in to do all the right things all the while our hearts are struggling to beat for you. By the power of your spirit, would you change us today? Would you soften our hearts in precisely the areas in which they're hardened? And would you help us trust and rest in you, Jesus? The one who promises, come to me and I will give you rest. We love you. Help us love you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.